This is the time in our service where we come to the scriptures and where we um, seek to hear from God what his message to us would be. Uh, we believe that, um, that he has a word for us uh, in, his, in his word that he's given to us. We believe this is inspired by God, given to us to reveal what he's like and what he loves, and uh, ultimately to communicate to us the good news about Jesus. And so each Sunday we come and we want to um, sit under the scriptures and receive from God. Uh, but we also actually believe that, that, um, that preaching isn't ultimate in our gathering together. Sometimes maybe we think that. Maybe we think, well, hey, as soon as I've, at least I've got a sermon, it's good enough. God, his desire is that we would not only um, hear from him and listen to him, but that we'd respond to him. That we'd respond with faith, that we'd believe him, that we'd receive what he has for us. And so we'd respond with faith, but also with love, with praise, with worship and thanksgiving. Um, and so that's why we've uh, structured the, the gathering that we have in the way that we have. That, that we would, on the front end, hear from God, realizing that it, it's his initiative to reach out to us, to communicate with us, to, to share good news with us. And, um, and that he's, he's given this to us, not as an individual only, but uh, we don't believe that uh, the Christian faith is an is a individual thing, that it's not about you and your God, it's about us and our God, that he has placed us in a community uh, where together we worship, together we hear from him, and we encourage one another on. And so we have a connection time after the service where we have an opportunity, or after the sermon, where we have an opportunity to encourage one another, to love one another well. And then out of all of that, out of the, the message he has for us, out of the community he's given us, we respond with worship to him. We respond with thanksgiving. This morning we'll celebrate communion together as we celebrate and give thanks for the good news about Jesus. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 6. And uh, we are working our way through this uh, Gospel of John, one of the earliest uh, Greco-Roman biographies of Jesus, uh, where John, Jesus' best friend on this earth, wrote down the life uh, and the story of Jesus, what he was all about. And we've been seeing that uh, John organized this biography around um, seven signs that Jesus performs. At least the first half of this gospel is really centered around seven signs. And we're going to come to the fourth sign today. Uh, we've talked about the sign of the turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. We've talked about the healing of the official son. And we've talked about the, the uh, healing of a man at Bethesda. Those are the first three signs. We come to the fourth sign today where Jesus feeds 5,000. It's the only miracle uh, of Jesus that are recorded in all four Gospels, is this here, the, the feeding of 5,000. So let's read this passage together. Uh, originally, it was going to go all the way to verse 21, but I'm going to stop at verse 15 uh, this morning. Sometime after this, this is the discourse following the, um, the healing of the man at Bethesda, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind 
what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, would you gather the pieces that are left over? Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of God. So these signs, this is the fourth, like I said, this is the fourth sign of Jesus recorded in John's gospel. And they're not just Jesus showing off, right? Jesus isn't just saying, hey guys, look what I could do. There, there, there's a purpose by, for, for which Jesus performs these miraculous signs. They're not just miracles, they're signs. Remember, they're pointing at something. They're, they're directing our attention. That's the job of signs is to direct our attention. They're not the point themselves, but, but they direct our attention to the thing that is the point. And John tells us, I say this almost every week, he tells us why he writes this gospel. He tells us why he records the signs that he does. In John 20, he says, Jesus did many other signs. He, I could have written about hundreds and hundreds of signs, but I, I wrote about these ones so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. And so John records these signs and Jesus performs these signs in order for us to, re- to in order to reveal his glory to us, that we would see his power and his authority, that we would see his beauty, that we would come to understand why he came, why he came from heaven into earth, that he's the son of God, that he's the savior of the world who has who's come to give his life in the place of sinners and to reconcile us to God, to make us a part of the family of God to to bring a renewal and redemption of all creation. And so these signs are meant to stir faith in us. That's why John recorded them, that we would have life in his name, in the in the name of Jesus. And so it's Jesus' desire that we would see Jesus in these signs and see something about him that our hearts would be would be stirred to faith that we'd give ourselves to him, that we'd trust him, to see that Jesus is in a class all by himself, right? That he's God incarnate. He's the savior of the world. So we come to this passage here in John 6. Now, um, I always find it uh, somewhat humorous uh, how liberal scholars who have no place for the supernatural in their worldview try to deal with, with miracles that are recorded in the scriptures. And so there's, there's Bible, quote-unquote, scholars around the, the world who, who don't believe in the miraculous, don't believe that supernatural things are possible. And so maybe you remember a couple, uh, about a year ago, we were preaching on Jonah and um, the liberal, I mentioned how liberal scholars saw the great fish and they're trying to explain what's this great fish that swallowed Jonah, that Jonah stayed in for three nights. 
Uh, Maybe the Great Fish is a seaside resort on the Mediterranean that Jonah stayed at for three days. Remember that? Um, That ridiculous notion of how to to deal with Scripture? Well, the liberal scholars uh, give alternate explanations for, for what happened here. They say, well, maybe this is a miracle of sharing. That... You know, every, you know, everyone had their food, but they're hoarding it. They're keeping it to themselves. But this wee little lad comes along, and he starts to share. And all of a sudden, everyone's sharing with each other. And now there's more than enough for everyone. Well, I don't know about that. Well, actually, I kind of know about that. I, I don't agree with that. The eyewitnesses of... John is an eyewitness, right? This has all the marks of eyewitness testimony. He says, hey, this is where it was, and there was lots of grass here. Uh, there's eyewitnesses alive who can confirm or contest what Jesus is, or what John is recording and what Jesus did. And the eyewitnesses are not t- saying, hey, this is a miracle of sharing where everyone just became Barney for a day. Like, this is, this is a miracle of multiplication. This is a miracle of abundance. This is a miraculous sign showing Jesus' power and authority. And as we'll see next week, as we get into the discourse that Jesus um, has later on about himself as the bread of life, that this has messianic overtones. That, and, and we saw it a little bit at the end of this passage where, where the people are saying, this is the prophet. If you were reading it, it was in capitals, right? The prophet. Moses, um, Moses led Israel out of Egypt, right? In the Exodus, and, and God provided, the, in Jewish thought, the miracle par excellence. The miracle of all miracles was the provision of manna from heaven. The, the provision of this miraculous bread that appeared every morning to feed the people in the wilderness. And Moses says in Deuteronomy, he says, there's one that God's going to raise up a prophet like me, after me, who's come and who's going to save the world from their sins and who's going to be the king, who's going to be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the, the long-awaited savior of the world, the one who'll defeat our enemies, the one who'll bring peace, the, bring, the one who will bring reconciliation with God. And so the, the Jews were waiting for someone who would come. Um, and and there's, there's, we'll talk about this next week, but there's many Jewish uh, scholars who, in, in, uh, who were saying that, you know, as was the first Redeemer, Moses, so will the second, Moses, second Redeemer be, the Messiah, who will provide bread from heaven. And so there's many Messianic overtones to this. And, and we'll get into that next week as we look at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Now, it's possible that, um, that you would have a presupposed worldview that doesn't allow for miracles. That's, that's, that's certainly possible. And I, and I certainly, by kind of talking about this miracle of sharing and, and how I don't agree with it, um, I, I don't want to denigrate your, your worldview. That you um, certainly, many in our culture, would have a worldview that doesn't allow for the supernatural. And so we have to give other example, explanations for what happened here. Why is John, as an eyewitness, recording this at a time when other eyewitnesses were still alive who could either confirm or contest what Jesus did? And remember that these eyewitnesses lost their lives testifying to these things. Right? Remember, there's all the details given to all the marks of... This is that Passover season, which again leads into the, the meaning of the miracle and the Passover bread. Lots of grass, all kinds of uh, details given. So this is a miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 men. It's a gender-specific word. Like, so it was 5,000 male adults. Um, and so probably ten to 20,000 people 
in one place, Jesus feeds with a couple of fish burgers. And this miracle is to reveal something to us about Jesus. He's wanting his glory, his power, his heart, his character to be revealed. And there's this discourse, like I said, that follows this. But this morning, we're just going to focus really on what this account itself, this miracle itself, just the immediate truth that this sign points to. What is this sign, this this multiplication of food, of bread, um, and fish for the people? What is that? What does that point to? What does that tell us about who Jesus is? And how does how does seeing Jesus like that? How does that how does that birth faith in us? How does that stir us to faith, to believe in Him, and to find life? In his name, and so we're going to do that by looking at the two contrasts, the contrast, two contrasts between Jesus and his disciples in this passage. And the first contrast I want us to see is the contrast of the compassion of Jesus with the indifference of the disciples. I want to see Jesus' compassion versus the indifference of his disciples. You see, the disciples are at best they're indifferent to the uh, to the crowd. You know, the other three Gospels that also record this sign, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they say, they actually record the disciples asking Jesus, hey, uh, time to send them away. Get rid of them. Time to go. Because this is a desolate place. This is the wilderness. There's nowhere, there's no caterers around, right? Send them away so that they can get something to eat. And Jesus says to them in some of the other accounts, he says, you get them something to eat. You do it. 20,000 people, you do it, you feed it in the wilderness. And so in all of the accounts, we see the compassion of Jesus being highlighted. Mark, Matthew, Mark actually say that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. The word, the Greek word there means guts, like kidneys and intestines, your insides. It means to be moved so deeply that you can actually feel your gut. So Jesus just has this deep compassion on the crowds. Luke says that he welcomed the crowds. He was glad to see them. He's, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He cured those who needed to be healed. And so Jesus' heart goes out to the crowd, to the multitude of people. He cured those who needed to be cured. He cares for their spiritual condition. He wants them to, to know about the kingdom of God, to explain to them why he's here, to reveal his heart to them. He wants them to be reconciled to the Father and so he cares for their physical needs. He cares for their spiritual needs. If they are possessed by an oppressive spirit, he wants to see them delivered. Jesus is moved by the crowds. With all of their needs, with all their hurts, they're not an inconvenience. And what you need to hear today, too, is that you're not an inconvenience to him either. That you're not an inconvenience to Jesus. His heart goes out to you, whatever need you may have today his heart is actually towards you whether you have a spiritual need where you're just sitting here with guilt feelings of shame maybe sorrow maybe great regret over your past and you're wondering if there's any way for for the slate to be wiped clean here for me is there any way that 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 i can start over jesus has great compassion for you he wants you to know that there is new life in him, that there is new start. There is forgiveness with him. Some of us are struggling with mental illness. And Jesus' heart goes out to you. 
He may want to heal you of that. He may want to walk with you through dark days. But his heart is towards you. His heart goes out to you. Some of us have physical diseases, life-threatening diseases. His heart goes out to you. His desire may be to heal you. Some may be struggling with darkness. Jesus' heart is for you. It goes out to you. You're not an inconvenience to him. Some of you may be struggling with very practical things. Maybe you, maybe you need a job. Maybe you're in financial straits. Jesus' heart goes out to you. You're not an inconvenience. He's not indifferent to your pain and to your sorrows and to your cares. The crowds are the very reason he came. Disciples want to send them away, but Jesus says that he won't send them away. This is why I came. I came for people. I came to see people restored to God. I came to see people's needs met. I I came to see them gain relief from suffering. And when when the disciples think of the crowd, the question that sets sets their mind, that's dominating their mind is this, is what will it cost? What's it going to cost? What are these crowds going to cost me? You see that? Right? Philip, Philip replies with, hey, Jesus, we could spend eight months wages and not even everyone wouldn't even get a bite. What's it going to cost? What will it cost us? But, the, but Jesus, I think the question that, that dominates his mind is what are they worth? What are, they, what are these people worth? What's their value? You see, the difference, only one of these two questions will dominate our response to the crowds of people in our cities in our region who are in need. That will determine our response to those who are suffering. One of those two questions will dominate your mind. It might be the same as the disciples. You know, what is this going to cost? If I get involved with this person, what will it cost me? It might be inconvenient to me to befriend this person. Um, That might interfere with my personal plans of comfort. It might interfere with my agenda. How dirty will I my hands have to get if I'm going to move towards the crowds with compassion. What, what will it cost me? And when you ask that question, what's it going to cost me? Most of the time, I think indifference will be your response. Or you could ask like Jesus, what are they worth? Friends, we're, we're, we're surrounded by people who are down and out, down and out or up and out. Whoever, your neighbors, co-workers, friends, family members, there are tremendous needs in the region of Niagara. And we're talking about people who are made in the image of God, people that are loved by God, people that are pursued after by God, people whose lives are ruined by sin, by, by circumstances, and they're in need of God's grace that God freely offers to them. One of those two questions will dominate you. And whether we have the compassion of Jesus or whether we have the indifference of these disciples will depend on the question that's dominating our thinking. What are they worth? Or what's it going to cost me? But you see, what? before you even ask that question, you go a step back, you have to see. Verse 5, Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming towards him. He had eyes to see the crowd. He saw them. 
It's, that's, it's actually highlighted in all the Gospels as well. Jesus' vision of the crowd, that he saw them, that he knew them. And that, that it wasn't just like a physical, like, hey, I'm looking out and I see a group of people here. It, it's, he saw them, like he saw into them. He had a vision for them. He, he saw the crowds in a way his disciples didn't see. Right? The disciples were certainly aware that there's a big crowd of people with a desperate need for food in a really desolate place. They saw, they saw the, the people. But Jesus took in their suffering. He took in their poverty of spirit. He felt it. He sympathized. And friends, we need to take in, as disciples of Jesus, we have to take in the spiritual, the physical needs of our community and of our world. It could be your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe you've never even thought about the fact that your neighbor who lives right next to you, who spends 365 days of the year in a, in a house right beside you, doesn't know Jesus, is, is ignorant of God's grace and God's power and his compassion, God's love. Do you see it? Maybe it's homeless people. Maybe it's the spiritual blindness all over the world, ignorance of God or impression or injustice. The easy thing for us to do is to turn an eye, to, to, to be willfully blind, to not see it. But Jesus invites us to be a seeing people. He invites us to see. That's why, shameless plug, tonight we have a prayer walk. Where we gather here and, and, and go out to various neighborhoods. Maybe, maybe you don't live right here and you say, well, I'm going to gather for a little bit of worship. And then we'll go back to the neighborhood in which I live. And we're going to walk that neighborhood with a new intentionality to walk and see to see the needs and to pray about them to see their worth to see what my neighbor is worth to god to see the broken and the needy and the hurting in the region of niagara and and ask what are these people worth to god these people are, their lives are alienated from God, broken by sin, broken by circumstances, and they need the message and the mercy of Jesus. They need a community called the church. They need the presence of the Holy Spirit. They're deeply loved by God. They're pursued after by God, and he invites us to share in his compassion. So we see the compassion of Jesus versus the indifference of his disciples. I hope that confronts us a little bit. I think we're meant to be confronted by that. But, but I think this text also wants us to see that Jesus' compassion for people isn't just weak pity. It's compassion with power. With power, right? And so the, the second contrast I want us to see this morning is the power of Jesus versus the unbelief of the disciples. The power of Jesus versus the disciples' unbelief. Jesus turns to Philip. Philip is actually from this region, and he says, Hey, Phil... Where are we going to get food to feed all these people? It says Jesus knows what he's going to do, right? He's testing Philip. And, 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 and Philip's response is, listen, let's not get carried away, Jesus. We do not have enough resources to deal with the situation. And so let's just send them on. Let's be done with them. And then Andrew comes, right? And we love Andrew in the, in the Gospels. The disciple Andrew is always, every time he's mentioned, he's bringing someone to Jesus, which is great. He's always inviting people to come along with him to Jesus. And Andrew, he starts off so well, but if he would have just stopped talking, right? He says, 
well, here's a little boy. He's got some food. If he would just stop there and say, I know you, Jesus. I've seen you turn water into wine. I've seen you heal people from a distance. I've seen you heal this man of Bethesda who's been an invalid for 38 years. I know you. I don't know what you're going to do, but I know you. You could do something with this. But Andrew doesn't stop talking, and he's like, but what are these among so many? Right? In other words, both Philip and Andrew are saying that there's just not enough resources for us to meet the need. We can't do it. They couldn't see beyond their own lack of resources. In that, in that moment for them, there was no room for the supernatural. They're, they're infected with unbelief. They, you know, again, think of all that they've already seen and how quickly they've already forgotten. They've seen water into wine. And not just, like, not a glass. Like, gallons and gallons of, like, these massive jugs turned into wine. Healing the sick from a distance. A a man who's been unable to walk for 38 years at Jesus' word gets up and carries his bed. And yet they're struggling with unbelief. They didn't have room in their thinking for the power of God. And friends, we live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus. How much, how much greater of an advantage do we have to know that Christ has risen from the dead, that he has ascended to the, the right hand of the Father, that he has indestructible life, that he has all authority? And how often is our reaction to exclude the supernatural from our thinking? That when we look at our own needs, we look at the situation of people around us, just the sheer amounts of the needs of the crowds in this world, the multitudes, often, you know, we care, we're not indifferent, like we wish we could do something, but alas, we just don't have enough resources. We just, you know, could anything ever change? You look at the spiritual, you know, climate of our nation, where the vast majority of Canadians don't know Jesus and his love and haven't responded with faith to him. In our, in our, in our nation that's just making a beeline away from, from Christian faith, and you say, well, what are we among so many? We're just the remnant, just the few. What can we do? We look around the world, we, think, we see global poverty, or we see the, you know, Millions and millions of slaves, human trafficking. Like, what can we actually do? So I think this miracle, this sign, is meant to encourage us that Jesus has compassion, but it's compassion with power. Right? He's compassion with power. He takes these five little barley loaves and two fish. And this little boy brings it to Jesus. And Jesus does this miracle. And the, the picture is right as one of abundance. Not, you know, Philip is thinking about everyone have, getting one little bite. Jesus provides everyone with more than enough. Twelve baskets left over. One for each of the dim-witted disciples. Right? More than they started with. <laughs> it's the way God works, Right? It's not about the resources we bring to the table. It's not about your fish burgers. It's that he brought them to Jesus. 
It's not about your resources. It's not about our strength. It's not about our wisdom. It's not about, you know, what we bring to the table. It's not, it's what he can do with what we bring to the table. Think of the joy that would have been present at this miracle. Think of the kind of joy. The power, the joy of God will not be found in what you keep, what you hoard, what you keep to yourself, but in what you surrender. And when we surrender it to the king, that's where abundance, that's where multiplication happens. When we clutch and we cling and we protect our territory out of fear of loss, we will not find joy. We will not find life in what we hold on to, but what, in what we surrender. Here where there's surrender, the response is the power of God at work. Now, it's actually, it's interesting to note that Jesus works this miracle apart from anyone's faith, right? It's not in response to anyone's strong faith, saying, Jesus, I know you. I've seen you. I know your power. Go, have your way. We trust you. No, there's, there's zero of that. There's zero faith, right, before Jesus does this sign. There's no faith in this passage at all. But Jesus works this miracle despite their unbelief. Despite their lack of expectancy, sometimes it's God's will to work apart from our faith. That we're in a crisis. And we're not looking for God to come through. We're not expecting him to do anything about it. And yet, because of his grace, he, he, he shows his power. And he helps and provides. In other places in the scripture, though, we find and we see that his, it's his will to work in accordance with our faith. That where the faith is small, the work is small. Where the faith is absent, the work is absent. And where the faith is huge, the work is huge. Sometimes he works in accordance with our faith. There's a passage in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus is in his hometown. And, and the people don't believe in him. The people don't believe that he's the Messiah, the Christ. They don't believe that he's a rabbi or a teacher. They don't receive his authority. They don't receive his teaching. And it says there that because of their unbelief, Jesus could do no miracles in that place. And it says he was amazed at their lack of faith. Sometimes Jesus works in according in accordance with our faith. Sometimes we settle for such small things in the kingdom of God. But the scriptures talk of the kingdom of God not consisting of talk, but of power. Right? Of power. The, 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 the picture the Bible paints of our God, of Jesus, is that he wants to do a powerful work among his people. Again and again in scripture, we see that God's intervention in our lives with supernatural power is often contingent on our faith in him and our dependence on him, our trusting in him, our calling out to him, our pleading with him, our hoping in him, our waiting on him. Jesus says, ask and keep on asking and you'll receive. Seek and keep on seeking and you will find. Knock and keep on knocking and the door will be open for you. But you have to keep at it. I will step in. I will bring a breakthrough. I will come and do a work in your midst. But we have no idea what we've missed out on because of our unbelief, because of our lack of persistence. Do we have the... And so I, the, the, the picture that I'm just struck with is... Do we have this vision of a king who steps in with power and works to do mighty things among his people for their joy and for his glory? This, this sign is saying, don't exclude the supernatural from your thinking. Don't exclude the power of God from your praying. 
cornerstone. I want us to put that kind of living away. I want, to, I want us to put the lack of persistent prayer away, the lack of desperate pleading with God to work in grace and power away, and that we would be ready to, you know, take, to, to stop putting God out of the equation, to put that away, to renounce that kind of living. He wants a people who will trust in Him and believe in Him and call out to Him and not doubt Him, who are not bound by unbelief. One of my favorite Old Testament stories One of the things that's so provoking to me in the Old Testament is the story of King Asa. And it's found in 2 Chronicles 14 to 16. This little... Asa is a king of Judah. And he comes to power and he begins to follow after God. He begins to bring about reforms in the nation, destroying idols. And God blessed him and gave him peace. But along the way, the king of Ethiopia, Zerah, comes against him with one million soldiers. An army of a million men and many horses and chariots. And Asa falls on his knees and he cries out to God. And listen to his prayer. He says, Asa called to the Lord his God and said, this is Second Chronicles 14, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let this man prevail against you. Up against armies they cannot conquer. They will not rely on themselves. They will not exclude God. And so they cry out to him. They depend on him. You see, prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence on God. Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence on God. Right? If you don't don't think God's going to come through, praying is ridiculous, right? Makes no sense. But when we stop and we say we're going to gather together and we're going to cry out to God for him to act, for him to move, that's relying upon him. God comes through and he he wipes out the army of the Ethiopians. And a prophet, a man of God, comes to Asa and and, and right after that in in verse 2 of chapter 15, he says this. He says, the Lord is with you when you are with him. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So you reap what you sow, the law of the harvest. If you reap, if you sow a harvest, if you sow seeds of trusting, of seeking God, of relying on God, you will reap a harvest of God's presence to bless you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. If you don't want him, you won't experience him. If you minimize the person of God, you'll minimize his power. Now, in spite of this experience that Asa has, this, this experience that must have been just, you would think, just laser, laser, lasered on his mind, 30 years later, Asa faces another military challenge. Another army comes against him. And this time, what he does is he goes into the temple. And he takes all of the gold and the silver. And then he goes to the king of Syria and pays tribute to him and asks for his protection. Instead of relying on God, he goes out and he goes to another one of his enemies and says, Hey, here's a bunch of money. Would you protect me against this other army that's attacking? This time, another prophet comes, Hanani the seer. And he says this. He came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram, the king of Syria, and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram, of of Syria, has escaped from your hand. I was going to give you the army of Syria too. But because you went to him and asked for his protection, instead of relying on me, he's escaped from your hand. 
We're not the Cushites, the Libyans, the Ethiopian army from 30 years ago. A mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen. Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Now listen to this. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing. And from now on, you will be at war. He's saying that God through this prophet says, I was so ready to work a mighty victory in your midst. Not only was I going to save you from the armies that were attacking you, I was also going to give the king of Syria into your hand too, but you didn't trust me. You look to the strength of men instead of God, and now because of that, your life will be full of trouble. Here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking. My eyes are, are scanning all throughout this world. Those whose hearts are not bound by unbelief, those whose hearts are fully given over to me, people in whom I will then strongly support. See, Cornerstone, we have, we have such a desire for God to do something so profound and powerful and gracious that the eyes of nations would be moved to this region. Wondering, what in the world is God doing there? But he's looking for people whose hearts are fully his. Fully given over to him, crying out to him, depending on him, trusting in him. Not like these disciples are saying, you know, we just can't do anything because we don't have enough. One of the modern stories that's really captivated me is the story of Pastor Jim Cimbala, Brooklyn Tabernacle. I've referred to him many times. Many great stories. Book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I'd highly recommend it to you. Very simple, very inspiring, very clear. Jim Simbola was sick, and he was on a sabbatical trying to recover, pastoring a struggling church. And he sensed the Lord saying, as he was reading scripture, he was sensing the Lord saying, if you will lead this church to cry out to me, if you will lead this church to just call out to me, if you will make prayer the highest priority, You'll never have a building big enough to, to, to hold the crowds I will send. You'll never lack something to preach about. And Jim came back to his congregation and he says, I have an announcement to make. The most important event of our church is now our weekly prayer gathering. Still come Sunday mornings. Keep, keep coming on Sunday. That's great. But, but the most important, the barometer for our church will be our prayer gathering. And the rest, as they say, is history. He's got story after story of, of persistent prayer and God coming through and meeting their needs in a way that only God can. We want to be a church not bound by unbelief, saying, well, our resources are few. We're at the end of our rope. We, we want to be a, be a church that's saying our hope is in you and looking out and crying out to God that he would work, that he would come through. Now, sometimes God puts us in situations to test us, right? Like he does Philip. We've got quite a predicament here, don't we, Phil? What are we going to do? Sometimes he puts us in situations to test us. You know, and, and friends, people, we live in Niagara. We live in the Niagara region. We are a strong, self-reliant people. And it's not our default mode. It, to, to trust someone other than ourselves. Our default mode is to trust in our own resources. 
But sometimes he puts us in places where our weakness gets exposed and where we realize the smallness of our own resources, whether it's our money, whether it's our will, whether it's our strength. And the question for us is, are we going to exclude the supernatural from our thinking or will we appeal to Jesus in desperate faith? And are we inviting the supernatural power of God into our lives and into our church? Not just in crisis, but in daily life. This is what I believe this passage is inviting us into. To become a community of love, a community of compassion, not indifferent, and a community of prayer. A community of love that's free of indifference, so that we don't sit out and look and remain silent at the needs of this world, but rather removed in the gut, in our guts, where we have real compassion, where the love of Jesus is planted deep in our heart, where we actually care for our neighbors. We care about the physical and the spiritual suffering in this region. And we're not people who are numb to pain, but we sympathize, we enter into it, asking what are they worth, not what does it cost. And will we be a community of love, caring for one another, caring about the condition of our region, of our nation, and of this world? And where we're not content until the fame and the renown of Jesus is magnified in Niagara. People transformed by his message of mercy. And that we would be a community of prayer that is free of unbelief, free of self-reliance. A community that cries out to God, that expects from God, that looks to God. And my conviction as your pastor is that if God will do anything in our church, it won't, and I don't say this to be dramatic, but a testimony of the word, the scripture, a testimony of church history throughout the ages is that if God will work in profound ways in our church, it will not be because of the preaching, it will not be because of the worship, it won't be because of our systems, it won't be because of our strategies or our logos or our graphics or any other cool program we can put on, it will be because of our prayer. And the, the, the message the Lord has laid on my heart as, as your pastor is to give myself and to lead this church to be a church of the word and of prayer. That we would be a church of the gospel of Jesus, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. That, that not just, you know, academics studying the word, like we talked about last week. Search the scriptures, because if you know a lot, then you'll have eternal life. No, that we would that we would t- take the scriptures seriously and see that it's all about Jesus. That the scriptures from beginning to end are a story of Jesus. And he invites us into that story because of his grace. That we'd be a church that would be serious about the word, but more than that even, that we'd be a church serious about prayer. Serious about private prayer, daily on our knees, crying out to God. And a church that's, concerned, that's, that's active in corporate prayer. I've said this many times too. Book of Acts, which is the story of, of the founding of the church. The story of what the church is, is, I think this book is saying, this is what the church is supposed to look like. Mentions prayer a lot. I think 30 times. 28 of the 30 times, corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. Private prayer, yes. Corporate prayer. It's the testimony of church history. It's the testimony of the scripture that when God moves in gracious and powerful ways, it's in response to the prayers of his people. And so Cornerstone, that's our call. 
to be disciples of Jesus, moved with great compassion for our region, and moved to faithful, persistent, desperate prayer. And so let's pray.